Welcome to Charlotte Reader's Podcast, where authors give voice to their written words. This is the show that features stories and poems by local and regional authors, the kinds that touch the emotions, followed by conversations that offer depth and insight into the readings and writing lives of the authors. We record this show in the well-equipped podcast studio at Advent Coworking, located right here in the Belmont community near Uptown Charlotte. Support for Charlotte Reader's Podcast is provided by Park Road Books, the oldest and only independent bookstore in Charlotte, conveniently located in Park Road Shopping Center. And by Charlotte Mecklenburg Library, a connector of readers, leaders, and learners with 20 locations and a 24-hour online presence. For more information about these book-minded sponsors who help authors give voice to their written words, please visit them online at parkroadbooks.com and cmlibrary.org or drop by the bookstore or any library branch. Support is also provided by members like you, and for that, we offer our gratitude along with some awesome member-only content. You can find out more about these member benefits at charlottereaderspodcast.com. But enough with the prologue. Let's get to the stories. I'm your host, Landis Wade. Thank you for listening. In today's episode, we meet author J.A. Joe Walsh, whose debut novel, Purpose of Evasion, takes its title from the CIA Oath. Joe brings his practical experience as an Army intelligence officer and his work in counterterrorism to create his first in the Sammy Lacani thriller series, where Sammy, a new kind of spy hero, is faced with a ticking clock to prevent the next hotel explosion in a series of explosions on U.S. soil planned by enemies both foreign and domestic. We start the show with Joe reading from the prologue of the book, where we meet a highly placed government employee who has the ear of the president and who is planning something under the table— without oversight, and particularly illegal. After 9-11, it became conventional Washington wisdom that the people who hated America would no longer express their feelings just by blowing up our embassies in the Middle East and Africa, and that the FBI needed to take on more counterterrorism and intelligence responsibilities. The problem with the FBI was they wanted to do things covert agencies had long done, but with a bias toward prosecution. The Hoover Building was full of people who liked to arrest and indict and convict. Langley was different. The CIA traded in information. When they found no willing customer for their reporting, they sometimes conducted misadventures of their own, but their trade was secrets, not justice. They used secrets to compromise agents who were, by definition, liars, and who in turn provided more secrets. If the CIA discovered that Mr. Bad Guy would like to harm America, they collected information about Mr. Bad Guy. Information, not evidence. If Mr. Bad Guy developed capabilities to harm America, they degraded those capabilities. If Mr. Bad Guy had actionable plans to harm America, they disrupted those plans. They might even kill Mr. Bad Guy, but they would not arrest him. Information was power, even if they never used it. Langley's approach suited Gerald much more than the FBI's. The J. Edgar Hoover building was an insult to its namesake, one of America's foremost secrets and lies blackmailers. If the CIA had the same information included in the FBI memo Gerald was reading, the CIA would not have told the White House. Gerald would have found out because he had a guy at Langley, too, but if he let this go on any longer, the FBI would be handing this memo around Washington like homeless newspapers at a metro station. Soon the dipshit director would know, and while he served at the pleasure of the president, he was not someone the president appointed. If the director knew, so would the attorney general. The president did appoint him, but he was a cocksucker who worried Gerald. It could not get that far. He would tell his guy to make sure the FBI backed off. Still, someone needed to determine if what was in the memo was true. If it was, then it needed to be stopped. If it couldn't be stopped, then it needed to be managed. Gerald's problem was that the CIA had limitations. Like the Harlem Globetrotters, they did not play home games. 
The United States was the FBI's jurisdiction, but the Bureau didn't stop things from happening. They responded to them when they did. Since 9-11, a debate had raged about whether there was a third way that was within the Constitution. The Constitution went out the window when we let people who hate this country live in it, Seymour thought as he turned away from the window. Fortunately for Gerald Seymour, he was not the first person who dealt with a dilemma like this. He might shun conventional Washington wisdom, but some good work had been done over the years. There was a third way. There were people to call who were not concerned with chains of command or jurisdiction. They didn't participate in Washington's wars for bureaucratic turf. Gerald Seymour drained the last of the bourbon and picked up the phone. It was not a call he could have made from the West Wing. Arthur J. A. Joe Walsh worked in intelligence and counterterrorism after the 9-11 attacks and has degrees in Russian, English literature, and environmental law. Purpose of Evasion is his debut novel and the first book in the Samuel Akani thriller series and draws on the author's own service in counterterrorism and, as he says, is inspired by some of the great writers and heroes of the spy and political thriller genres, including Alex Berenson's John Wells and Daniel Silva's Gabriel Allen as well as the novels of Stephen L. Carter, Michael Crichton, and John Grisham. Charlotte's Queen City Nerve calls Purpose of Evasion a chillingly plausible storyline charting a white supremacist plot to infiltrate our government and says it promises to be a thrilling adventure and may also serve as a thought-provoking wake-up call to readers. Joe lives in Davis in North Carolina with his family. Host Landis Wade is committed to making this podcast worth your time. He's a recovering trial lawyer, award-winning author, book and dog lover, whose laid-back style encourages authors to read and talk about their published and emerging works. You can listen to this show for free at charlottereaderspodcast.com or at Charlotte Mecklenburg Library's Digital Branch website. And you can subscribe and listen for free on Apple Podcasts or wherever you like to get your podcasts. Show notes of this episode with images, links, and information about the authors are available at charlottereaderspodcast.com. Charlotte Readers Podcast is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network, powered by Ortho Carolina. For more information, go to queencitypodcastnetwork.com. Joe, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it, Linda. Uh, tell me, J.A. or Joe or what? Yeah, Joe's good. There's yeah. a very famous Joe Walsh out there, so putting yeah. it on the cover of the book is trouble, but in yeah. an interview, I'm happy to be Joe. Yeah, and he's a music guy? Yeah. Yeah, guitarist for the Eagles. Yeah, so you're you're kind of way down on the Google search when they... Yeah, yeah, Joe Walsh. Unless unless I get a, a bestseller, I'm not breaking through uh, to page 25 of those reviews. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, Joe, I'm happy to have you on the show, and I'm, I'm interested to talk about... Uh, this topic of terrorism and spy novels, but but first your background because um, you know you do have an interesting background that kind of feeds into what you're writing here. Tell us a little bit about your background and how you use that to infuse realism into into this book. Yeah, absolutely. So so I, as as you mentioned in the introduction, I uh, joined the military intelligence corps after the attacks of 9/11. Uh, I remember very distinctly that morning, as I think so many people do. Uh, where I was, and and I remember as it unfolded over the the following days, uh, getting the very distinct sense that uh, it was it was pretty clear that there were people, uh, in, I don't mean this in a conspiracy sense, but there were people in the government who knew who this person Osama bin Laden was that the rest of us didn't know about, knew this organization Al Qaeda that so many of us had become so vividly aware of on that day, uh, and 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 it occurred to me in that moment that. I thought the the country was in a, a place where, where we were going to need people to, to provide service, and uh, I thought the next time something like this happens, I want to be one of those people that that knows what's going on and see if I can't uh, can't help my country that that I I feel such a such a debt to. So it was a it was a great honor to serve in intelligence and in a really interesting career path. 
Yeah, well, Joe, thank you for your commitment and service there. But but just so I understand, right after 9-11, I mean, shortly after you enlisted? That's right. Yes, sir. Yeah. yeah. In October of 2001. I took my oath October 23rd, 2001. Yes, sir. And then you told your girlfriend about it. That's right. My girlfriend, <laughs> now wife, uh, we had actually uh, been together. You didn't do it in the reverse order, right? No, it was. It was, uh, and and I, I, we have a good friend who's a marriage therapist, and she says to this day still takes exception with my, uh, what she considers my proposal technique. But uh, yes, I I, uh, I went down and, and took my oath. I thought that I was going to have a little bit of time uh, before I needed to ship out and 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 start uh, serving, and found out. Uh, as I think you learn very quickly as a military family that when the army decides, uh, you move pretty quickly and there's not a lot of discussion. So I had to go back and tell my girlfriend that this was the plan. And I think the exact words that I said were, you know, it looks like I'm going to be leaving in March. And I guess if you want to come with me, we better get married. And so, so that's what we did. So (laughs) that's a hell of a proposal. Yes, sir. Yeah. Yeah. So what exactly does an army intelligence officer do? There's a really wide, uh, wide choice in terms of, of the opportunities that are available. Uh, so everything from, uh, I guess, you know, the really big categories to put things into would be intelligence collection, and that can be uh, a variety of, of, you know, human intelligence, signals intelligence, uh, cryptological intelligence. Uh, and then there's analysts. Those are the, the folks that are actually taking all that data and doing some analysis and trying to put it together. And then there's the operational side of intelligence, which uh, can range everything from, um, you know, leading teams that are out in the field uh, providing human intelligence collection to uh, the initiation of actions that are based on intelligence. And, and a lot of that, uh, it's a big part of the book, and it's part of one of the reasons I wanted to write this book, is a lot of that during this war, and, and I'm talking about the post-9-11 period, uh, has shifted from the military carrying out those activities to civilian agencies carrying out those activities mm-hmm. in a sort of a paramilitary structure. Yeah, you, you, you joined something, I think you told me, called a mobile intelligence team. Yes, sir. Yeah, yeah. What is that exactly? Yeah, so I think one of the lessons that we learned very early in the war um, was, the military learned very early in the war was, that you know, military intelligence units often don't deploy as a, as a unit. They, they get attached to other organizations. So, uh, you know, an, intel, uh, an infantry unit, uh, very large infantry groups, the the, the units that, that um, you know many of the listeners would be familiar with, the 101st, the 82nd, uh, the 1st Infantry Division, they'll get uh, intelligence units kind of sprinkled into their uh, groups as they as they uh, head into to theater. Uh, and what I think the military discovered, uh, largely driven by the revelations kind of around 2005 and 6 uh, in this war, so things like the Abu Ghraib revelations, uh, the revelations of, of enhanced interrogation techniques and, and other things was, hey, you know, it might be a better idea if we had specialist teams that were very focused on intelligence collection rather than mixing these folks in to a structure where, you know, it's not to their detriment at all. An infantry commander's mission is to do infantry work, right? And so uh, if you're riding on the tail of an infantry platoon that's heading out of the wire as an intelligence officer, uh, you take a back seat to what needs to get done, and, and then you try to collect whatever intelligence you can on the back of that operation. That wasn't an ideal way to conduct intelligence operations. And so, yeah, and we're going to talk about interrogation before the – hours up because uh, that figures uh, prominently uh, in your book here. Yes, sir. But before we do that, I'm a little curious. Um, you're not a practicing lawyer, but after you got out of the military, yeah. you went to law school. What were you thinking? I did, yeah. So I'd always had some interest in it. You mentioned in the introduction, I've you know some of the, the legal writers have, had always interested me since I was a high school kid. Uh, but no, the experience that I had in the military, for sure, there, there were moments as I was leaving in 2007, leaving government service, uh, we were we were as as you um, as you as you know we were 
looking at a future transition from the Bush administration to what would become the Obama administration. And one of the items that became a big talking point in the campaign was, uh, well, these revelations have been made, and, and we think that detainees have been mistreated, and what legal ramifications and repercussions would there be for people down to, to my level, right, individual intelligence officers? And so that was very much a driver behind mm. me wanting to go and, and learn about the law. Study study what you may have gotten yourself into. Yeah, and, that's right. you're interrogating people. Yeah, unfortunately, as you know, the, military, the Uniform Code of Military Justice does not make up a big part of the JD curriculum. Yeah, so. yeah. So, okay, so this first read that you had, uh, we, we've got this character – uh, we can tell right off the bat that he's not a not a good guy. He, he he's a little bit subversive himself, trying to control things in the government. But it explores the differences between the CIA and the FBI. Uh, can you expand on that just a minute? And and you told me a, a term called stovepiping when we were preparing for this, and talk about that too. Yeah, absolutely. So so you know traditionally, and and you heard it in the reading there. Traditionally, the the FBI's role is is as a law enforcement organization within the bounds of the United States generally speaking, right? There are some exceptions to that. Uh, the CIA is a foreign intelligence agency. Now, now, obviously, those lines have been crossed, and things like the Church Committee tried to address some of the crossing of those lines uh, in the past. What, what um, was discovered after the attacks of 9-11, and, and, and I think it's going to be a part of our conversation here today, Landis, but it's impossible to overstate the significance of that event from so many different perspectives. I mean, obviously, the, the loss of life uh, is, is paramount, but in terms of you know, foreign foreign uh, policy and national security policy, it changed so much. Mm-hmm. One of the recognitions of those events was that uh, there were people inside of this country that were uh, living here as permanent residents that the FBI had concern about. And the CIA on their side had been monitoring Al-Qaeda and paying attention to certain threats related to the potential use of, of airliners, commercial airliners, as, as, um, as bombs. And uh, those lines were never connected because... Uh, the rules that were in place at the time prevented communication between those organizations about this kind of information. And that's, for, and that's stovepiping? For good reason. Yes, yeah. sir. Yeah. So it was stovepiping, right? What does that right? yeah. uh, So in other words, uh, the FBI had their stovepipe, and they were pushing information up to the highest levels of our government through their own structure, but it was never crossing over to the intelligence side mm. uh, of things. And so pieces were— no, no bridge between the pipes. That's right. Yeah. yeah. And there was nobody—now, that now, uh, uh, people may be familiar with the, the Office of— the director of national intelligence didn't exist until after 9-11, and really that was one of the primary moves that was made to, to end stovepiping. Well, and, and you also foreshadow in, in the beginning of the book something you call the third way. You know, uh, people who don't deal in change of command, those that, you know, sort of are off the grid or under the cover. I'm thinking the Jason Bourne series, yeah. all these different – is that – does that stuff really exist in our government? Yeah, I mean, so obviously, you know, when we're working in genre fiction, whether it's me or Robert Ludlum, you, you take some liberties with, with the structure of some of those things. But I think it's fair to say that what I'm talking about in, in the book and what Sammy does, uh, the organization that Sammy works for, is very much similar to the kind of program that is represented in those Bourne books. And the short version of that story is they're, they're intelligence special access programs. So what that means, uh, often called like black operations in-, yeah, in the, uh, the black operation. Yeah, yeah. in our more-, uh, more <laughs> Makes for a good spy novel too, right? But yeah, so, so what those programs mean, uh, Landis, in a really, really brief summary is Congress authorizes those programs, but, uh, but recognizes that uh, the nature of the work needs to be kept secret. And so even though the program itself is authorized, the individual actions or operations of the program operators aren't, aren't uh, overseen by Congress. So they authorize it, but they don't want their fingerprints on it. Is that it? Uh, a lot of times we have seen some examples, and I talk about them in the book, where uh, operations get cleaned up and put back on the record at the end of, of the operation. Mm-hmm. So I think that's certainly that political risk is part of it. 
Well, let's talk about the title of the book for just a minute, uh, Purpose of Evasion. It actually comes from the CIA oath. Tell us how you came to use that clause from the CIA oath for this particular book. Yeah, well, I have to, I have to tell you, so, so the, the world of publishing, I'm, as you mentioned, I, I come from a, a different background. This is my first book, so I'm learning a lot. Uh, this is not technically the CIA oath. This is called the Oath of the U.S. Uniformed Service. Now, in the book, it says CIA oath because the publishers felt putting the Oath of the U.S. Uniformed Services at the top of the page was, was a little bit... Nobody would understand Yeah, that. not quite as catchy, right? <laughs> so so it is an oath that is taken by by CIA officers. Um, th- this oath is... Um, so it is a CIA oath. It's not the CIA oath. Yeah, yeah. sure. That's right. Yeah. Okay, good. It's, yeah. So uh, this oath is full of great terms that people would have seen in other books. The challenge that I had in trying to use uh, this oath, as you, as you look at it, and there are phrases in here like support and defend against all enemies, foreign and domestic, bear true faith and allegiance, as you probably have picked up on already, and some of your readers, if they're interested in this kind of book, Tom Clancy used almost everything that's, that's in here already. He's, uh, already. he's already used every clause. Yeah, he's stolen all the good titles in here, uh, Landis. But, so yeah, so Purpose of Evasion has not been used in, in a really um, widely known book. And uh, given that character that we just met in that opening read, as you mentioned, and, and what his purposes are politically, Purpose of Evasion suited um, this this story really well. Yeah, and you've got an epigraph in here too. I'd like you to look at. There's a dedication and an epigraph. Uh, you, you you quote Thomas Jefferson. Uh, can you read that quote and then just t- tell us why you use that? Yeah, sure. So this actually is from a letter that Jefferson wrote to John Adams on April 8th of 1816, and he wrote, "There are indeed gloomy and hypochondriac minds, inhabitants of diseased bodies, disgusted with the present and despairing of the future." always counting that the worst will happen because it may happen. To these I say, how much pain have cost us the evils which have never happened? And I have to tell you, Linus, it's a great North Carolina story. That that quotation, as it's uh, written right there in the book, is etched into the stonework that surrounds the fireplace at the Grove Park Inn in Asheville, North Carolina. And I so, was, so are they expecting some trouble? <laughs> I'm not quite sure how it made its way to that spot, but I yeah. was sitting there and actually working on this story uh, two winters ago, sitting by the fire and saw this. And, uh, you know, this book is very much a meditation on post-9-11 national security and foreign policy. And uh, so I think, you know, the, 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 the spirit of that quotation in terms of uh, how much pain have cost us the evils which have never happened uh, it immediately spoke to me and spoke to me about this story, and that's why I wanted to include it uh, here in the book. And you dedicate this uh, book to victims of hatred everywhere, to the defenders of freedom for everyone. So that's something from your own experience, I take it, that you've seen firsthand? Yeah, absolutely. I think it connects back to who this character is as well, Landis, right? So so in all the great spy fiction that's out there that you cited in the introduction, uh, I found a lack of characters that match up with the people that I served with in intelligence, right? And many of those people are first-generation or second-generation Americans. And so I wanted to honor them by by uh, talking about how much they've given uh, to this American ideal and this American dream. And I also wanted to recognize, and it's a big part of the story, you know, we, we, we have grown accustomed to um, a certain narrative around what terrorism looks like in, in the post-9-11 world. And... Um, I think it's very important that people recognize that, you know, why these while these threats do exist, and while some of them may be threats that we need to take very seriously in the United States, I think it's really important that people reflect on the fact that 99.9% of victims of, for example, jihadi terrorism internationally, are 
Muslims. They're people who are co-religionists of these terrorists. They're, these attacks are happening in their home countries. Well, spe- speaking of that, this is sort of sets up my question about uh, the main character, the protagonist in the story. Uh, Sammy is a Muslim American hero. He's not the normal spy novel protagonist. Um, he's also gay. So why choose a character like that for a spy novel? Yeah, there's a few reasons behind it. So one was, as I was thinking about writing a spy novel, uh, I really wanted to make sure that I wasn't doing something. The question that I had to ask myself, Landis, was why does the world need this book and, and why does it need me to write this book? And I didn't think it made a lot of sense to come up with another character that looks like the typical sort of James Bond type of a hero. Uh, and so as I began to think about that approach to this book, what became uh, imminently clear to me was, well, when you read a post-9-11 spy thriller and you come across a character who's got a name like Sammy Lakani and the physical description of Sammy, you know you've just met the bad guy, right? That's And, and for genre fiction, formulas sometimes are, are good. Uh, but I thought, what if we could challenge that formula and challenge people's expectations? So that was one one big part of why I chose that character. Uh, the other piece of it is it was important to me that um, as this story played out, Sammy was a person who didn't feel that he had uh, a community of love or support anywhere he turned. So as a, a member of the LGBT community, he feels uh, disconnected from his religious community. Uh, as a Muslim American, he feels very much like he's part of something that represents American ideals, but also has been in some sense waging war against his co-religionists for now 18 years. So he feels very disconnected from everything in his life. And so he's, uh, he's got a lot of internal conflict going on while at the same time he's doing this job to protect uh, many Americans who, who don't approve of him, uh, either where he came from or his sexual orientation. So we got a little read here. I'd like you to pick up here in the book from the chapter Battlefield, and we'll get a little, you know, we'll get a little sense of who, who Sammy is. Of Pakistani Muhajir origin, Samir's skin was a caramel color, and when he grew a beard, it was wiry and black. A mustache could age him into his mid-forties. Clean-shaven, he could pass for twenty-five. He was tall and thin, and he dressed fashionably, but not fastidiously. Nothing too noticeable. He could be a computer programmer, or your Uber driver, or a soldier, freedom fighter, spy, terrorist. He wasn't certain where he fit on that spectrum anymore. Whatever he was... He still needed tradecraft. The world did not know yet, but from the cafe, with nothing more than an internet connection, he played his role in an attack that killed at least a dozen, maybe more. He didn't know for sure freedom fighting was an inexact science, but he watched the explosion from 7,000 miles away. It was eerie, silent. The dust settled without any of it catching in his own throat like it would have in the beginning of the war when he was face to face with the enemy and he saw the bodies. Back then, he went village to village with other soldiers. Cornfred infantry jarheads who looked nothing like him. He entered the homes of Afghani and Waziri families who could have passed for his cousins. And yet, no matter how many times the scent of their homes singed his nose, the same realization always surprised him. They were strange to him. He had more in common with these boys from Alabama and Massachusetts than he did with his grandparents, who were born in one of these villages. Each generation developed its own rules, based on its own changing values, based on the facts of its own wars. This generation's values seemed especially temporal. They killed in the open now, his side and the enemy's. They carried their weapons in backpacks. No matter which of them struck a blow, there was a press release in the can. 
and they ran to the computer before the smoke cleared to disseminate the news. He had seen both sides of the war. Wherever he fought from, he was valuable to the U.S. intelligence community because he knew the rhythms and tones of the enemy. He might feel more like the American boys he'd deployed with, but he was not sure they felt the same about him. He spoke the language of the enemy and worshipped their god. He fought with those boys on far-flung battlefields, but he fought another war too, inside, 7,000 miles from the desert. He still fought on both fronts. In Yemen, a group of men and boys had been taking a day off from their training for some falconry. They wanted to kill Americans. Their mistake was that some Americans discovered their plan, and since the Americans could no longer grab them and hold them forever in a cage on a hot, stinking island, the Americans killed them first. The missile was fired from the sky above them, but carried by an unmanned aerial vehicle that was controlled by a 22-year-old kid working a joystick in New Mexico. The targeting was Sammy's job. Now that it was done, he was thinking about ordering takeout. This was unlike any war in history. Sammy loved his country, and he did his job. This operation killed 15 of the enemy, including one of the top targets in all foreign jihadism. It was the sixth such notch in Sammy's belt. He followed the rules as they stood each day. He followed orders. In the lead-up to a big mission, there was anxiety, but now he was calm. He killed strangers for a living, but he endured the nature of his work because those strangers had done, or planned to do, bad things to Americans. His conscience was clear, but maybe it shouldn't be. All right, Joe, you finished that read with uh, the word conscience. Um, and I wonder how much of a toil this takes on the minds of the people who have to carry out these missions because this is real stuff, right? I mean, p- people are engaged in this kind of kind of work oh, yeah. in battling terrorism, right? As you talk about conscience, uh, Landis, you know, one of the things that, that soldiers and intelligence officers have to do is – is find ways to cope with these. And I, I think soldiers throughout history have had to do that, right, whether they're killing face-to-face or not. So it's, it's, it's strange as you read about the folks that, that conduct the targeting and strikes using unmanned aerial vehicles, UAVs, uh, you'll see that they've desensitized a lot of the language, right? So, so instead of, uh, instead of uh, victims, they'll, they'll talk about bug splats, right? That was the, the, the military term that was used for those who were killed by uh, UAV strikes when I was in uh, in 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 the army, so seems, seems a bit insensitive, doesn't it? Yeah, you yeah. A, you have a little bit of a little bit of uh, or callous, distancing guess. oneself yeah, from yeah. from the the truth and the reality of what you're doing. And, and I do think, you know, one of the toughest parts of being an intelligence officer, in my opinion, and I think it holds true in this case as well. Talking about a, a UAV strike, is the nature of the work require, requires compartmentalization of information, right? I don't know everything. I don't know all the details, and that's because operational security requires that I don't. So I have to trust that, that what's happening is being done for a good reason. And if you're that drone pilot in New Mexico and you're told to strike a target, you've got to believe that the intelligence officer on the ground that identified that target has good faith as part of his uh, analysis and that the folks who made the decision on the legal side that it was okay to kill these people have done so in good faith. So you're, you're placing a lot of, of trust in our system. and. Uh, I do think it requires you to uh, really be sort of, uh, you use the word conscience, you, re- you really do have to sort of check out a little bit and trust that other people are looking out for that for you. And you mentioned interrogation. What I'd like to do is have you read this scene involving interrogation in the book, and then we'll talk about that, that topic. When compared to humanity, psychology is in its infancy. Psychologists sought to identify sufferers in the 19th century so they could be quarantined and to analyze everyone in the 20th century so they might be treated. Still, in the 21st century, there is much to learn about the pathology of the mind. 
Unfortunately for Hassan Khalifa, when it comes to the normal and expected behavior of a subject when responding to certain stimuli, American intelligence knew more than he would have wanted. Interrogators at the intelligence school in Fort Huachuca, Arizona, or at the farm near Damneck, Virginia, learn techniques that will make a subject talk. The wise old hands at those schools also know how to break the will when someone does not want to talk. These techniques all make use of psychology. The first lesson? Interrogation mind games were for city detectives and FBI agents in golf shirts. That's how they play the game when the Constitution was in play. In law enforcement, they had to sit there and let some little shit act hard and clam up. All those guys have is their wits. It was chess. Chess isn't war. When hotels are blowing up, it's war. It is said doctors can develop a god complex. They save a life or bring someone back from the dead and the feeling eclipses pride. It becomes compulsion. But the doctor moves on to the next case. He gets in his bends and gets stuck in traffic. He goes home and the dog puked on the rug in the front hall. The god complex takes hold only where the pathology is strongest. Interrogators also develop a variation of the god complex. Despite the horrific and sometimes apocryphal stories of torture training academies where sadism is fine-tuned, it does not take much training or creativity to figure out how to fuck someone up bad, especially not someone who is tied to a cot without food or water for days on end. It doesn't take waterboarding. Put someone in a cell alone for a few days, no lawyers, no phone calls, and you control their world. Interrogation is about control, not manipulation, control. Putting someone on, like a puppet you wear, and pulling the strings they didn't even know were there. Control their thirst and hunger. Decide if they sleep and for how long. Control whether they shiver or sweat. If you do all of that, and you do it right, you can control the beating of their heart. Food, water, light, dark, pain, comfort. That's not psychology. That's reality. God made real. If you can starve a guy for days until he's catatonic, then wake him up, force-feed him, throw him in an ice bath, and ask for one small but critical piece of uncertain data, he will lack the ability to deceive. He doesn't know whether you're asking something he wants to keep secret or why it might be important. Even the best in the world cannot cloak their deception under those circumstances. That was the game. So, Joe, when we're dealing with domestic terrorism or foreign terrorism, a lot of people would say that the... uh that the ends that is preventing these kind of attacks justify the means, right? And that's kind of what got us into some of these issues uh, with the way that, you know, prisoners were treated uh, following the Iraq War. So, and also you got this uh, Geneva Convention. Does it even come into play? I mean, there's this is where all the legal issues come, come up, right? Yeah. So talk a little bit about, I mean, because what you just read sounds very true that if you treat somebody in the way that you're talking about treating them, you're probably going to get information that you wouldn't otherwise get from these people that might then prevent another 9-11, right, of innocent civilians being targeted. And yet, is that appropriate? When is it appropriate? Uh, is it only appropriate if it's a foreign national? You know, is it appropriate? what about when there's, you know, someone who's a citizen of this uh, country? Uh, can you talk about your own experiences there and and how you dealt with some of that. Sure. So the legal questions, I mean, you and I could probably go on for le- forever, Landis. Right. right? It'd, be, it'd be a long podcast. We don't have that much time. <laughs> really, really fascinating stuff, interesting stuff, and there's great writing out there about it. So I would encourage people to look it up. But really, this passage is getting at, I think, two things. And, and a lot of this book is a meditation on, I think, my generation, that is Iraq and Afghanistan veterans, uh, this generation, this this war since since 9-11, a meditation on discussions that, that we have as as compatriots. 
And and so I think number one, this gets right back to that Thomas Jefferson epigraph. You know, what what does it cost us the pain that has never happened, right? So. Uh, it, it became clear to me as uh, an intelligence officer that it was always going to be too handy to make the excuse, well, there could be another 9-11. Well, there could be another 9-11. Uh, and, and thank God that has never happened. And, and, and I'm hopeful, I think like everybody else is, that no such thing will ever take place again. But um, when, when do we stop citing that event as a uh, license for us to do whatever we want to do to whoever we may find wherever we, we may find them yeah and it seems that emotions are running higher as, as they should be right after 9 11 and, and and things happened then that probably would not have happened at other times in terms of interrogation and how you know we get information but is there anything you can talk about that's uh, non-classified relating to your training and experience as an interrogator as an army intelligence officer yeah i can tell you that that i think you know so so i i can't echo enough the respect that I have for the the instructors that I worked with, particularly at the Army Intelligence School, which is is based at Fort Huachuca in Arizona, down the the border with Mexico. Uh, But one of the things that I think you realize very quickly in the breach is you've been trained with all these different interrogation techniques, fear up, fear down, harsh fear up, harsh fear down, ego up, ego down. There's all different ways that you may want to approach a different subject. Try to figure out what their motivations are, figure out ways of approaching them. Um, you, you can see me sitting across from you, Lannis, but for those listening, um, I'm, I, I guess I'm considered to be quite an imposing person. I'm about six foot five and 230 pounds. And Plus you have that Dodgers hat on too. Yeah, well, go Dodgers. I <laughs> uh, didn't get to wear that. But uh, so, so, you know, the interrogators, the, the interrogation instructors were always very keen on instructing me how they thought it was best to use my physical presence in, in, in interrogations. Um, and that's all great. And, and it was a great school and it was a valuable experience. But, but I'll tell you, what I very quickly realized is uh, in the breach, uh, those lessons all, in some sense, go out the window. Because uh, when you've got somebody who that day or that week or that month had been with their family uh, and now is in the custody of a adversary who they very much have reason to fear because of the things that they've been involved in, uh, not knowing whether they'll ever be free again or whether they'll survive, the stakes are pretty quickly obvious to such a person, and uh, all those techniques that we've learned in intelligence school kind of go out the window because you've really taken over this person's uh, this this person's being, right? I mean, if, if you can put yourself in, and I'm not justifying any of these the actions that p- folks might have taken, but if you can put yourself in those shoes for a minute and imagine that uh, whoever you in your mind view as being uh, the United States' worst adversary, uh, if the very baddest people, and I don't mean bad in the moral sense, but uh, the bad dudes from that country all of a sudden grabbed you and had total control over you. It is not a an enviable state to be in. So. All right. Well, listeners, when we come back uh, after our short break here, uh, we're going to talk uh, a little bit more with uh, Joe Walsh about uh, the book Purpose of Evasion. We're going to talk a little bit about the plot. We're going to talk about domestic terrorism. I'm going to ask Joe whether we're safe and how uh, safe are we these days. We're also going to do the Writing Life segment. Uh, we got a few short reads left, so Please stay with us. Hey, listeners, I'm here with Fabi Pressler, owner of Spark Publications, an independent publishing company that helps business owners and corporate professionals to tell their stories while sharing their knowledge. And today we're talking about process. Fabi, what's the first step in the process for someone who wants to try to 
find out if they want to work with Spark Publications. We have a really quick video introduction and then we just dive into a strategy session where we really dig in and discover the audience, the vision for the business, the personal long-term goals for the book that in order to exist. And many of your clients have not ever written the book before, right? That's true. We yeah. get them in on step one and um, we teach them processes to help them write their manuscript from the mind dump to a table of contents to that 30,000th word and back you know, back cover copy and then to the few rounds of editing, rewrites, and then the fabulous design process. So you're, you're kind of serving as sort of a concept uh, editor at the outset, helping the, the would-be author visualize how they want to tell their story? Everything from the strategy to the writing to the editing and the, the design and then to the distribution and marketing, mm -hmm. yes. Okay, so step one, let's, you go to the website, you see a video, you find out, then you you sign up for a strategy session, you talk through it, and then uh, and then the real work begins, right? The real work begins, and it is fun. <laughs> Are you saying writing is fun? <laughs> I didn't say that. I just said the whole process is fun. <laughs> okay, all right. Well, uh, if people want to find out more about how to work with, uh, with you, how do they do that? Go to sparkpublications.com or send me an email directly at info at sparkpublications.com, and we'll get the process started. Charlotte Readers Podcast and host Landis Wade are grateful to you for listening to this show. If you like the show, please leave a short written review on Apple Podcasts, also known as iTunes, or the podcast platform of your choice, because your review helps authors share their stories with more listeners. Thank you for your support. All right, we're back with uh, Joe Walsh, the author, not the uh, guitarist for the Eagles, but who uh, are talking about your book, uh, Purpose of Evasion. And we haven't really talked too much yet about the plot. Uh, this involves domestic terrorism. You've got a protagonist who's working as part of sort of an unaccountable government group, um, this third way that you talked about in, in the opening. Um, sort of time is running out. There's a ticking clock. You've got bombings that are occurring at hotels. There's also this mystery, I suppose, about... Uh, the protagonist's Muslim-American community. You wanted to weave that. This gets into his internal conflicts, right? So tell us about the relationship between the grandparent and the main character. Yeah, so Sammy was born uh, just outside of Washington, D.C., in, in Loudoun County in Virginia, where his grandfather had moved from his home in Pakistan and become a very prominent Washington-area imam running a mosque in in Fairfax and Loudoun counties, just outside of Washington. And so Sammy grew up with uh, a well-known grandfather, uh, very much a part of the faith community, uh, a leader in some sense in that community. And uh, Sammy's parents, who lived overseas during his childhood, were killed in an embassy bombing when Sammy was uh, nine or 10 years old. And so he's really been raised by his grandfather. And when he's first brought this investigation and asked to, to, to get involved, the reason that they assign him to the case is because they believe that there are connections to his grandfather's mosque, that, that, it, that it, there's a cell that's um, operating out, out of that mosque. And there's sort of a uh, troubled relationship to some extent between Sammy and his grandfather, right? So, is, But they send him anyway to, have, to talk to his grandfather to try to get intelligence about what might be going on. And it's not clear... You know, whether his grandfather is naive, whether he knows something that's going on, and Sammy's got all of this personal stuff invading his professional life. Yeah, absolutely. He's, he's 
gone to his grandfather very much against his own will because he feels like he needs to to get his job done. Uh, he's estranged from his grandfather. He's felt that looking back at his childhood, there are things that he's seen and heard that, con- that concern him. And so when this case is brought to him, it really makes him confront a personal dilemma that, that he'd been able to come up with excuses during his entire life, including as a member of the Muslim faith who's a gay man, I'm estranged from my grandfather because he can't accept who I am. Uh, this is certainly true, but there's more to their estrangement than just that. And one of the reasons, uh, you, you've got a blog on your website, and your website, all that information will be in the show notes, uh, uh, listeners at uh, charlottereaderspodcast.com, where you can you can access his website. And, and on there you have a blog, and uh, there's an article you had that I, I saw is one of the reasons you wrote this book, and the title of it was Hate is Rising, and That's Why I Needed to Write This Book. Can you talk about that? Yeah, absolutely. So I think, I don't think it's giving away the book, Landis, to say that what Sammy very quickly discovers is that while there is one person in the mosque community who uh, suspicion is correctly cast upon, this person is not someone who's connected to or been trained by a terrorist organization, an international terrorist organization. And so Sammy, as a as a good intelligence officer, begins to ask the question of, well, if something's going to happen, then, then who are the operators? Who are the people that are going to actually put people at risk? And what he discovers are that that um, the the group that's actually connected to this attack is, is a white nationalist group. Uh, people look at me sort of with a, a, a screw face when I say, well, the connection between this Muslim community and the white nationalist community, well, aren't, aren't these people very much at odds? And you start to look at the beliefs and, and uh, the things that these communities espouse, there's a lot of connections between these two communities. And so uh, this book for me was very much a, a commentary from the inte- intelligence professional's perspective on, I think the best example I can give is if you look back during the 2016 uh, campaign and, and you, you think about the Syrian refugee crisis and the, and the public discourse about the question of whether or not we should admit refugees from Syria to the United States, I think what most people remember about that debate, if it can be called a debate, is uh, that the notion was given that, well, terrorists will be coming in with these folks. As an intelligence professional, it was very easy to look at that situation and say, uh, yes, there's a risk. It'll be very difficult to figure out who these people actually are. Uh, And there are certainly very dangerous groups that are operating and training in that area of the world that could have potentially um, both radicalized and also operationally trained a person who might make uh, entry into the United States. But, but, uh, but by the same token, I think as an intelligence professional, what's laughable about that discussion is if you look at hundreds of thousands of acres of compounds in the Western United States that are controlled by really dangerous groups who have for years and years espoused really hateful things uh, and who have all the protections of the Constitution, uh, the First Amendment protections to allow them to express those feelings, the Second Amendment protections to allow them to stockpile arms, you got the neo-Nazis. You got white supremacy on the rise. Uh, I think yeah, you mentioned you mentioned in your article the wave of populism and nationalism that's been on display, not only in the U.S. but around the world, has sort of fed this idea that they can get away with more. Right? Yeah. They can be more, uh, I suppose, uh, violent in public places, and they've been before, and then push back when others are violent uh, in return. Right? Yeah. So. How yeah. safe are we from domestic terrorism? Well, I think there are two facts that this book digs into, Landis, that, that I think are both facts that nobody really wants to address. The first fact is that the kind of attacks that we've seen since 9-11, which 
Um, it's not the, the best term, but we, we would classify as lone wolf attacks. So that is to say that these are people who may or may not have been inspired by international terrorist organizations, but certainly don't evince any training having been provided by those terrorist organizations. Those attacks are very, very difficult to stop. You look at an attack like the Boston Marathon bombing attack, where uh, U.S. permanent residents were able to access a recipe to create a really destructive explosive device on the Internet, required no travel into a known area of operations, required no contact with a terrorist organization. Nobody wants to hear it, but for an intelligence community, it's really difficult to stop that kind of attack. The second fact that it doesn't seem, in terms of public discourse, we want to acknowledge is that those are the kinds of attacks we've been exposed to since 9-11, and we could list those places, San Bernardino, Charleston, Charlottesville, Christchurch, New Zealand is another example, Pittsburgh Synagogue, and so forth. Uh, If you look at the casualty counts from those attacks since 9-11, the totals are almost evenly split between uh, attackers that we think may have been inspired by international jihadi organizations like al-Qaeda and ISIS, and attackers that are inspired by white nationalist ideology. So again, that's the Pittsburgh synagogue, that's Charlottesville, that's Charleston. Yeah, and we want, we want all of our uh, law enforcement uh, personnel and uh, e- even to be coordinating with Homeland Security and CIA to be working as hard as they can to prevent these kinds of attacks from occurring. Uh, to push the envelope and not so far that you, you know, violate the Constitution. And yet, um, as demonstrated by this next read that you're going to do, that needle keeps moving in different directions depending upon the times, right, uh, in terms of what is appropriate and what's inappropriate in, in, in gathering information from a suspect. So I'd like you to read that section, and then we'll talk just a little bit about that. After 9-11, White House counsel and staff counsel at several agencies seized the moment to offer reinterpretations of Executive Order 12-333. The lawyers argued that many of the rules that govern spying, including those outlined in EO 12-333, were no longer applicable because the activities engaged in by the CIA were not intelligence activities, but military activities. With a broadened scope and a public skeptical of those few media voices who wondered what became of civil liberties, the administration grabbed the authority it felt was necessary to keep Americans safe and prosecute the war on terror. There was fallout from this decision. Some resulted from overreach at the operational level, based on a command directive to kill bad guys and prevent another attack. No one told the 20-something reservists guarding prisoners at Abu Ghraib to walk their charges on dog leashes and turn the whole exercise into a photo shoot. That kind of stupid couldn't be taught. But other activities were doctrinal, briefed and approved by the highest levels of government. Seven years after 9-11, many were well-documented. Waterboarding, Guantanamo Bay, and enhanced interrogation had all become household terms. Sammy was not an interrogator, but he had translated when enemy combatants were being questioned. Some of these combatants had not come off battlefields, where they were bearing arms against the U.S. Instead, they were rounded up in house-to-house raids based on intel provided by analysts like Sammy. Did that make them POWs or something else? No one was sure. And if they weren't sure what their status was, they couldn't be sure how they should be handled. Some of these guys even ended up being Americans. If they were picking up American al-Qaeda fighters in Afghanistan, what made that person different from an American al-Qaeda fighter arrested in Minneapolis? When Sammy and thousands of other low-enlisted and junior-ranking civilian intelligence agents were given orders, they followed them. When White House counsel said it was okay to hold someone indefinitely, they were held. 
When the same lawyer said it was okay to interrogate them, they were interrogated. And when the same lawyer said that if they wouldn't talk, there were enhanced methods that were lawful because, by God, there was a ticking time bomb somewhere, they were waterboarded, or shoved in a box, or kept under hot lights, or barraged with ear-splitting heavy metal music for days. Right, Joe. A lot of this has been reported on in the media. Um, It's created a lot of uh, discussion on both sides as to what's appropriate and what's inappropriate. Um, or is the intelligence community still wrestling with some of these issues, and is the needle still moving in terms of what's appropriate and what's inappropriate? I have to qualify my answer by saying it's been a long time since I was active in right. that community, Landis, right? So I do think things have settled a bit. Um, by the same token, the discussion has shifted. So uh, I would point anyone who's interested in in, in these items and, and the, some of these legal and, and ethical and moral questions to a great story that was written by Michael Hastings in the Rolling Stone magazine back in 2012. And the story is about the rise of the drone war and how that solved a lot of these problems. So the unmanned aerial vehicles that came online uh, 2008, 2009, and 10 enabled us to take much more direct action in uh, both in the theater of combat and also in third countries, in places like Yemen. Now, when you say solve the problems, solve the problems in what way? Uh, you don't have interrogation because you don't have a you don't have a suspect. Yeah, they, the, they, they've been droned to death. The, the yeah. Obama administration decided that for them, they thought the right solution was this is a bad guy and he's a dangerous guy, and if we can find him and kill him, then let's do that. On that happy note, let's uh, <laughs> let's move move to the writing life. Well, on that note, Landis, <laughs> yeah. I should add. So I hope uh-huh. folks folks may catch this this reference, another Charlotte reference. So so yeah. uh, my main character Samuel Akani, uh, probably the most famous drone strike in American history is is the killing of Anwar al Awlaki, an American-born cleric in Yemen, an American citizen who was with Samir Khan, who was the creator and editor of Inspire Magazine, the online Al-Qaeda magazine, uh, who was a Charlotte resident at the time that he was, uh, he was killed. So, so a, a slight reference to, to Samir Khan and in, in my main character's uh, name hmm. there. Interesting, interesting. All right, Joe, we're going to shift just a minute here to the writing life segment. We'll talk a little bit of, uh, about your writing, uh, your background. In college, you, I think you told me you got in screenplays a little bit, and that's where you sort of got your juices flowing. I yeah. did, yes. Yeah. Some of it's held up pretty good. I read some of it, and it's, yeah. <laughs> you going to publish any of those? I don't know. I don't know. I wrote a Simpsons episode, which I thought was great, so maybe <laughs> I'll see if they'll take that. Okay, well, that'd be nice if they did. Uh, your first effort as a book, I think you told me, was uh, a stab at literary fiction. How'd that go for you? Not well. Not well. Uh, it's still yeah. in a drawer. Yeah. Uh, so I'm. I learned a lot about the business, I think, and and I, I look back at that book, Landis, as my as my training wheels, I think. Yeah. Uh, in terms of learning about um, what this publishing business today is is all about. Yeah. And uh, then someone suggested to you, I think you said that you maybe you should write a spy novel because you had all this experience. And were you were you hesitant to do that at first because maybe you were writing too much about what you knew or you wanted to write something else? Talk about that. I was hesitant for a couple of reasons. Uh, one is, and I love spy fiction. I, I read a lot of spy fiction even when I was an intelligence officer. I, I wasn't sure what I had to add to that canon or how I could improve that collection of, of literature. The second question was, I think, as you noted, and, and I think it's one of the one of the uh, items of feedback I get on the book, is you know I wanted to make sure that uh, at, at, a, at a basic level, I think, and this is really oversimplifying things, but genre fiction is about uh, taking a story that automatically starts with something interesting and catchy, right? So crime fiction, I mean, crimes are interesting, and spy fiction, well, spies are interesting. 
So uh, that's where you really need to be. Uh, to to paraphrase the 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 famous James Carville phrase, right? Like it's the it's the story. Stupid readers want a great story. <laughs> so I was a little bit worried that if I wrote a spy novel, it was going to come out a little bit like a textbook or a memoir or something that's a little bit more focused on some of these deep issues. And so um, so I think I tried very consciously to balance that with a story that I felt was relevant and um, and contemporary but also address some of these things that I felt uniquely positioned to discuss. Now, you've got a life other than as a writer of uh, spy novels, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. What yeah. do you do now? Uh, I work for an energy company that's based here in the southeast. Okay. So how do you work in your writing with your real job and your family? And Yeah. So we have little kids as well, four little kids, which is, takes a lot of time. Uh, Landis. So, yeah, my, my schedule typically is uh, I'm up at 530 so I get about an hour and a half before the kids need to be up and, and moving around the house and getting ready for school. So I have that 90 minutes in the morning when I can write. And then I try to do the same in the evening. Uh, for me, my process is, is pretty regimented. I've developed a process now over writing these few books. Uh, I go through a, a very detailed outline. So in fact, for the sequel of this book, I've got about a 20,000 word outline that I'll work from to, to build the sort of 80 to 100,000 word novel. Uh, so that's the first part of my process, and I don't do anything until that outline is finished. Uh, so you know you know how the book's going to end before you start writing? I think I do. Sometimes things change, but I, I've got it pretty well planned out before. And and do you – does that – because some writers don't like to do that because they think it takes a little bit away from uh, sort of the creative aspect of writing or the enjoyment of getting into that zone, so to speak. Other writers say they use an outline meticulously like you, but then they let themselves – move from it when inspiration takes them there. How about you? I try to balance it very carefully. I, I love the feeling of having a character pop onto the page and do things that I didn't expect to happen. And that does happen in my writing, and, and I try to embrace it. I also try to make sure I've learned in my experience, and I don't know if it's true for other writers, but I've learned in my experience that there can be things, turns of phrase or particular settings or events that seem to me to be really great and interesting, and I really want to dig into them and explore them. And all of a sudden, I've put myself down a cul-de-sac, and the story doesn't necessarily need that that moment or that experience or that setting to, to happen. And uh, and I have to go back and ask myself, wait a minute, is this is this actually uh, something that's to the betterment of this of this novel, right? So, so why do you write, Joe? Ah, uh, man, great question. I think I had mentioned to you in some other discussions. I was at a, a an author's event in New York this summer, big names, household names, and one of them got up there and said, look, you can tell yourself whatever you want, but unless it's your diary, if you're sitting in front of a keyboard and writing, you want people to read it. And I think that's true to an extent. I, I'm certainly interested in talking about a lot of these issues, and so I'm glad in the end that I was pushed toward writing spy fiction because I do think I have a unique perspective to offer. Uh, by the same token, for me, um, it's very much a, a therapeutic activity, Landis, which is why, and I'll tell you, my family this week is seeing the flip side of that. When when writing is going well and I'm into a story, um, it, it is a it is a great opportunity for me to spend 90 minutes a day um, doing something that I love and creating and and exercising those muscles. When the story isn't going so well, or when one piece <laughs> of the outline won't come yeah. together, man, is that tough? And and really, it so, does. So, is it, so what do you do? Do you, do you plow through? Do you get up and go? run a lap, uh, go go <laughs> work on something in the house, or what's your technique for dealing with when it when you're struggling with yeah, it? Yeah, I try it all. As you mentioned, though, unfortunately, or for better or worse, it is what it is. I mean, I, I've got a, a day job and a family and, and obligations that I've got to honor, so th that 90 minutes in the morning is 
is pretty sacred. So unfortunately, I you know three days this week I got up, got my espresso, sat at my desk in front of a keyboard and stared at the wall for sixty minutes until I could figure out <laughs> what needed to happen next. Okay. And, and that's tough. Well, what are the uh, vices and other activities that interfere with your writing? So I probably you know aside from my family and as I mentioned with little kids it, it takes a lot we won't, we won't of call time. them a vice no 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 it takes a lot of time call it a loving activity yeah. uh, my family and I. My kids would certainly call this a vice. We do between sort of, depending on the year, between 50 and 100 live baseball games a year. So we watch a lot of baseball. Yeah, so, so you attend a lot of ballparks. Oh, that's been a lifelong interest. Yeah. And then I'm actually, I've become fascinated, really obsessed, I would say, with, with soccer, with the global sport of club soccer, European soccer. And the way that I describe it to people, and this is that, that, that interest and that passion is almost eclipsing baseball for me. But it's like a second. It's like learning a second language. So baseball for me is this native language, and I understand it implicitly. But learning about soccer has been just an amazing experience. I think as a forty-plus-year-old person who's parenting children and needs to be sure of everything all the time and be right about things and know the direction and have a plan, I enjoy the experience of a couple hours a week being able to look at something and go, "I have no idea what's happening. I'm I'm here to learn. I'm interested in in, in finding out new things." So soccer's become a big passion. Well, you, you just confirmed um, you know, what's become evident to me through my own experiences and listening to authors talk is that uh, it takes a certain amount of discipline to be a writer, but uh, writing is also a great way to escape you know, from certain things. Yeah. And before we get away from a topic that I want to discuss here in The Writing Life, you had a very interesting way of promoting your book. A lot of authors don't think about uh, promoting their book until they've written it and it's done, which is about six months too late, right? So talk about your story about how you found a publisher. I think that might be interesting to, to listeners. Sure, yeah. So I had finished this manuscript. I had gone through the typical process with traditional publishing of uh, sending it around. I, I'm I'm at this point in my career, unagented, so going directly to publishers and, and, and seeking an agent who was interested in representing this work and hopefully this series. And uh, you know, the publishing industry is really interesting, Linus. I was finding that it takes a long time to go through that process. I mean, even agents who were receptive and publishers who were receptive and interested in the work would say, you know, give me a month before I can get to this. And I, I found myself thinking, boy, this really feels like a, a speed bump. And uh, it's slowing down the process. So what I did was I, I found a platform that is out there for writers to um, engage with audiences directly and pre-sell their work. And you you pre-sold a thousand copies of your book on what is it? Publishizer is the platform that I used, and it does allow you to essentially develop an online book proposal to actually sell and collect payments for copies of your book as pre-orders and then turn around and go to the publishing community and say, look, uh, I've sold a 1,000 copies of this book already. There's an audience. You're, some of your risk is taken out of this process. And some of you would say, you know, hey, Joe, that's kind of silly. If you sold a 1,000 copies, maybe you should uh, keep keep in the independent publishing <laughs> world right. and, and not give all those profits to the to the small press, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. I, I've thought about uh, in talking with writers, particularly through the Charlotte Writers Club, Linus, I've I've seen people who have approached that from every angle. For me, a big part of wanting to go the traditional publishing route was this feeling of nothing in the world that I've ever done in my my career, my life, has been as solitary as writing. And so I very much do feel 
like going through the traditional publishing process is valuable to me in as much as professional editors are getting their eyes on this work and hopefully improving it and pushing me to make it better. That was something I really valued. But uh, but no, I've talked to some writers who have gone completely the other direction, as you said. They they handled pre-sales on their own and then found freelance editors and uh, cover designers and so forth and, and have been very successful going that route. I think there's it's exciting at this point in the business that there's so many different ways that are viable. Yeah, and, I, and, and you've seen some that have started as uh, indie publishers and have gone with you know small or large press, and you've seen them that have started larger, small press and have gone indie <laughs> when they've gotten more successful. So a lot of options out there for authors to uh, to take advantage of. Right, we got a bit of a cliffhanger here at the end. Uh, last read, I'd like you to uh, to read for us, and then we'll, uh, we'll wrap up for today. Sammy had done his best for America. He was down now, bleeding onto a hotel carpet, while Gerald Seymour sat in the White House conspiring with terrorists. Sammy didn't know how he felt or what was real. His mind was bending. The pain in his shoulder was like nothing he had felt before. Starved for oxygen during training at the farm, the searing pain in his lungs then was sharper but not as heavy. The pain of alienation from his grandfather and his friends and his mosque community was deeper but not as urgent. The pain of losing his parents. His parents. All right, Joe, you left us, uh, you know, wanting to go out and get the book now, right? I hope so, yeah. <laughs> see, what, see what happens to, to Sammy and uh, in, in his fight against foreign and domestic uh, terrorism in this, uh, in this book here. And you're working on another one, is that right? Yes, Sammy Book 2 is in draft right now, so I'm hopeful probably before Christmas next year. That's, that's great. Well, Joe, I want to thank you for coming on the podcast and sharing uh, – not only your uh, writing life experiences, but also your knowledge of the intelligence uh, community and, uh, and sharing this great book with us. Well, thank you. It was my pleasure. I enjoy the podcast as a listener, so it was great to be a guest. Thank you, Joe. Thank you. Well, that's it for today. Another fine author giving voice to their written words. Next Tuesday, we'll have another in-depth episode with readings and conversations about the written word and the writing life of a local or regional author. But before then, be on the lookout for another Under the Covers episode where we do much the same thing we do here, but quicker, and sometimes away from the studio. Because there are just too many good authors. And not enough time. If you like what we're doing, please consider leaving a short written review on Apple Podcasts or the podcast platform of your choice. Because when you do, our authors' voices travel much farther and wider in podcast land. And if you're inclined to help us help authors give voice to the written words, and you'd like some member-only content cultivated by our authors and me as our thanks, please consider becoming a member supporter. You can find out how to become a member supporter and more about today's show and all previous episodes at charlottereaderspodcast.com. And you can keep up with news about the show by joining our email list and engaging with us on social media. We promise not to spam you because, well, that takes too much time. And if you do join our email list, we'll give you a free ebook written by me. Thank you for listening. We really appreciate it. Until next week. I'm Landis Wade for Charlotte Readers Podcast. <laughs>